Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Today, we're joined by Susan Cole. Susan will be reading to us from and talking to us about Holding Fast, a memoir of sailing, love, and loss. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Yvonne, I'm delighted to be here. So we're going to jump right in. And I'm telling you that like, slightly, I'm kind of, yeah, I would say nosy, but it's also I'm really curious. And I love talking to writers. I love being read to. So for me, it's a special joy. And so could you tell us a little bit about the book, please? Yes, the book is about leaving everything behind and sailing off. That's what my husband and I did. Um, We were in our late 40s, and we took our seven-year-old daughter from our home in Connecticut and sailed south. (laughs) We had had planned it for a while, but everyone, of course, thought this was crazy. (laughs) Um, We we had careers. We left. We still worked intermittently while we were sailing, but we more we really left everything behind and just sailed away. We had read about where we were going to go, but we we didn't have an actual plan other than south. (laughs) So the book is about our adventures, uh, our adventure, our sailing adventure, and about um, my relationship with my husband because I didn't want to go on the trip. Oh wow! I I don't know. I wouldn't have thought that you didn't want to go. Just from like even your description of it, I thought it was like you know you being like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Wow. I I mean, I mean, part of me did want to go, and I went. I I loved him very much, and um, it was his dream. Like since I first met him, but I also liked the stability. We had a lovely little house on a on a little river. (laughs) We had friends. um, you know, I'd gone to college in the, in New York, and, so, and we were still in that area in Connecticut, and just relatives, you know, that, that part for me was really hard leaving behind. Oh, wow, what an adventure. Could we have a reading, please? Yes, I would love to read. I thought I would start with the first chapter. Wonderful. We still lived in Connecticut that Saturday. My husband, John, and I took our seven-year-old daughter, Kate, to Mystic Seaport. As we reached the town of white picket fences and tidy window boxes of petunias, geraniums, and zinnias, John turned to Kate and said, in a few weeks, we're going to move on Laughing Goat and go sailing. I sprang to attention in the back. We had discussed breaking the news to Kate, but I hadn't known when John would do it. He waited until we came under the spell of the tall ships and recreated 19th century village where blacksmiths and carpenters plied their trades. As usual, John took his time raising a cigarette to his lips, inhaling, flicking ash in the tiny metal tray, flashing a grin at me, and waiting for Kate's response. Though the smell of his cigarette smoke no longer intoxicated me as it had 20 years ago, I still loved the sensual curve of John's hand around a cigarette. John was six when his family moved to Africa. When they went, or or rather before they went, his mother told him about lions and tigers and elephants and snakes anthills as big as houses, and the wild bush that would surround their new house where he could play. He couldn't wait to go. He wanted to impart a similar excitement to Kate about our voyage. Where are we going, Kate asked. South, first to Florida. Then we'll figure out where we want to go from there. Somewhere in the Caribbean. We'll snorkel. There are fantastic coral reefs like nothing you've ever seen. What about school? You and mom will do it on the boat. What about our house? We'll rent it out. Kate glanced at me. Passing the schooners on Mystic River, I could imagine sailing down the intracoastal waterway through charming towns like those on Long Island Sound. It'll be fun, I said, feeling like Judas. I didn't share my doubts and fears. Kate told her class the next day that she was sailing to the Caribbean and snorkeling 
and she wasn't going to school anymore. Her teacher, a sailor, was thrilled for her and asked her to write the class about her adventures. She promised they would write back. I wish it had been that simple for me. I did not want to go. John would tease me and say, I'll have to drag you out, kicking and screaming, clinging to the garden. I imagined myself red-faced and shrieking, my fingers black with dirt, while John yanked my legs and Kate stared open-mouthed. I was not a person who yelled. John wasn't either. In our 20s, vacationing in Isla Mujeres, Mexico, I was surprised when one of the locals with whom we convivially joked at a bar described us as the quiet couple. There was so much feeling between us that we never felt quiet to me. From the outside, though, we appeared so. We, us. When we fell in love, I glommed onto John as though he would save my life. He glommed onto me, too, as a way out of roles that smothered husband and father at 18, John Jr. to his dad's John Sr., the inherited mantle of a family who sailed to America on the Mayflower. The youngest of four with three older sisters, he was irresponsible John in his family, a party boy and artist in high school who beat to his own drum. I, too, was the baby in my family, arriving nine years after my sister and 11 after my brother, a much unexpected, unplanned third child. The four were already a family, locked in one argument after another, instigated by my volatile mother. My dad was the only one who lit up when I came into a room. I learned to stay under the radar to feel out the temperature before I ventured a word. In audio tapes, my mother recorded of our family dinners. Mine was the high voice piping up, shut up and listen. My dad died of heart disease when I was 10, and I was lost until I met John. John and I lived in our house in Fairfield for nearly 10 years, and Kate had lived there her whole life. Before that, John and I lived on old wooden boats in Long Island Sound for 15 years. On the water, we had no address. Our address on land, 425 Brookside Drive, sounded so solid, a red farmhouse on a hill alongside the Mill River, and a nature conservancy from which deer would thunder out of early morning mists. At first, I would repeat the address over and over, pinching myself as I wandered through the house on polished hardwood floors and flung open the tall casement windows. I wasn't ready to give the house up to live out John's dream of sailing off. As we sailed, the house became a beacon for me, the cozy red house on a hill, lights twinkling from the windows, river gurgling, the smell of wild strawberries drifting through the air, and a tattered tire swing suspended from a maple tree that Kate and her friends swung on over the stream, waiting for our return. Now, many years later, John has passed away, and the voyage occupies a space in my mind as bright as the lights of Havana when we drifted outside the harbor waiting for daylight to enter, but I can no longer ask him what he thinks it all meant. How beautiful. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm really curious about, so the book is filled with adventures and memories. And what was that point for you that you decided, you know what, I'm going to write this book and share it with other people? Well, there was an initial point when um, we had returned and from our voyage, which was three years long, and we wound up returning to Florida. I wanted to go up to Connecticut, where (laughs) where friends and family were, but John was having none of it. He didn't want to go back to the New York rat race. So we compromised on Florida, where we didn't know anyone, but it was warm. So, (laughs) so, uh, you know, uh, we were there. And about, I guess, a year or two after we came back, I was in a a writing work, just a local writing workshop. And I just began to write about, about the voyage. And from that time, I just kept waking up early and writing about it. 
And I met someone who told me about the University of Iowa having summer, I was still working and everything, uh, summer workshops. So I started going there to, you know, hone my writing. And I did that for a number of years. My process of writing this book was long. It was probably a total of, of 15 years because after a while, when I first wrote it, I was presenting us as heroes of the sea, you know, <laughs> all of our heroic antic, <laughs> heroic adventures. And later um, I realized, well, what is really interesting to people and, and, and true and authentic and, and actually more interesting to me is what really happened, which wasn't so heroic. I mean, we had a lot of crises and failures. <laughs> so, that, so I ended up writing, you know, that. And I, and I changed during that whole process. And also John, um, John became ill and, you know, and, and passed away. And I wound up urgently wanting to finish it after uh, a year or two after he after he passed. So that was my <laughs> my process. Oh, and what a tribute though to be able to to sit and reflect and enjoy and laugh again um, over the memories, and also to give it. It's such a generous a generous act to give it to readers so that we can experience and also explore to um to be reminded how beautiful the world can be and what an adventure it can be. So, you know, thank you for the gift of the book. Oh, well, you're welcome. <laughs> I, mean, I, loved, I loved writing it because it just put me back in that world, which was so you know, interesting. So. Oh, wow. Could we um, hear more from the book, please? Yes. Yes. This, the next passage I wanted to read is from the, from the fourth uh, chapter. And it's, it takes place, um, John and I are in our 20s. We, we met at work. You know, you know, each married to the wrong person. <laughs> we got together a few years. He even had two. He got married first at 18, had two very small children. But a few years later, we did get together. And that's where this begins. When John discovered a liveaboard community of boaters in Sausalito, California, on a business trip, he wanted to buy a boat to live on. Her first boat, XL, was an original 1903 Fire Island ferry boat, 48 feet long. XL had carried passengers from Bayshore, Long Island to Fire Island. John spotted XL in a New York Times classified ad. We bought her from Woody, who lived on the boat with his wife and baby at Oyster Bay Yacht Club and held up his jeans with a rope. XL's hull sparkled with a fresh coat of white paint. The spacious, sunny interior had a Franklin stove for heat and comfortable wicker chairs. Stairs led to an upper deck with sun lounges. When the boatyard hauled XL out of the water for inspection, stinky masses of seaweed and mud, along with thousands of snail-like barnacles, clung to nearly every inch of the bottom. You got a real garden under there, said one of the workers as the others grunted in agreement. The surveyor, a crusty New Englander, tapped a small hammer in different spots. He said, this hull will outlive you. We were pleased that he felt the boat would hold together. Only later did we learn that his nickname was Blind George. As we worked on XL nights and weekends that first summer, other boaters would stop by to offer encouraging remarks like, you know, the two best days in a boat owner's life, the day you buy her and the day you sell her. Gleefully, they would spell out the toil and expense to repair an old wooden boat. Although John had helped on his dad's sailboat, we had a lot to learn. John taught me to operate a palm sander, choose the right grid of sandpaper, roll bottom paint, dig out the rot, and mix two-part epoxy. Each evening, we went home to the apartment, exhausted. While I showered off the grime, though, far from feeling daunted, I admired the jaunty curve of XL's bow. I was at ease among rumbling travel lifts, riggers shouting from atop masts, sanders blasting, 
and fishy low tide smells. The boatyard evoked a memory of the flats in downtown Cleveland where my dad worked in the steel business amid tall stacks spewing fiery exhaust and men loading trucks with steel beams. After John and I finished painting and repairing Excel's bottom, we left the boatyard in Connecticut to head to Mamaroneck, New York, where we had arranged for a mooring. It was my first time on the water. John, who had never run a large boat before, backed XL out of the slip. The steering wheel was in the sleeping cabin, which overlooked the bow. Sweat dripped from his forehead as he worked the levers. His eyes narrowed to anguished slits. The throttle stuck. I wasn't sure what a throttle was and ran in circles in the small open enclosure in the the bow, shouting, what is it? What's going on? As XL sped forward toward a small knot of people waving goodbye on the dock, they split in all directions. I ducked inside. We crashed into a small fishing boat, but miraculously, the boat wasn't scratched. John said, we've got to get out of here. I nodded, unable to speak. John tinkered with the throttle, and XL edged away from the dock. We didn't look back. Once out on the sound, far from any other boats, John put the boat in neutral, and we climbed the stairs to the top deck. Lying back on lounge chairs, we gazed down at the sound from the majestic height of our upper deck and could hardly believe that this bright, airy ferry boat was our new home. On the way back down into the cabin, John slipped on the stairs and landed on the engine. We had left the cover off in case it overheated. Bloody welts and burns slashed across his back. I grabbed rags to stanch the blood. Our outdated first aid kit was useless, but we did have a sentimentophon. Every time a wave hit, the bed rolled to the other side of the sleeping cabin, and wicker furniture slid around the main salon. None of the furniture was built in as it was on most boats. My job was to ensure John had enough cold beer while he steered. John asked me to check on the dinghy that we towed from the stern. A bulkhead blocked his view. I leaned into the hallway and peered towards the rear where there should have been a back wall. Instead, a vista opened of the water and shoreline. The dinghy was bouncing along in the water behind us. I told him the dinghy was fine, but something was wrong. He raced back and rapidly eyed the water. The transom fell off. The transom, a 12-foot-long, two-inch-thick wall on the stern that normally enclosed the bottom half of the boat, had vanished. John spotted it floating beside us, XL, New York, emblazoned across the middle. He hurled a rope overboard to lasso it and missed. Then he dove over the side, yelling over his shoulder, you'll have to turn on a dime. I was now alone on a 48-foot ferry boat. Before the trip on XL, I hadn't been on any boat larger than a rowboat, yet John expected me to steer. I clutched the wheel and my feet froze to the spot. How did I get myself into this? What if I couldn't find John? Lightheaded, I tried to get my bearings. I didn't see him. And it continues with our escapade that day. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You weren't kidding when you said you all had adventures. And I'm so glad that you didn't go with the the heroic version. And instead, you told us, like, my goodness. Any idea I had about, you know... Wouldn't it be cool to one day sail away? I'm telling you now, the idea is gone. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is the reality. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So I'm really curious about what's something that you learned about yourself um, while you were writing, editing, or sharing it with readers? Well, I'll give you one example, and it relates to what we were talking about before. <laughs> so in the first draft of the book, that was the heroic version. And the reality was that 
for our first offshore passage, which was to the Bahamas, we were absolutely terrified. We, 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 had, we had sailed in Long Island Sound and we had that experience. And John was great on the water, but neither of us had ever sailed in the ocean or, you know, offshore. <laughs> so we were like heading, you know, heading down south, terrified the whole time as we went, as we went down the East Coast on the intercoastal water. <laughs> and then we're in Florida and we, and we have to, and we know we're going offshore. <laughs> And we leave, and this is this is in the book, but we leave, and it's just absolutely terrifying. So um, I don't, I probably don't want to give everything away, but anyway, we wound up getting help on that first trip, but it was it was embarrassing to us because you know we should we should have been able to you know we're we're experienced sailors we should be able to do it ourselves was our thinking, especially John, mm. um, you know, he was the captain and. Not that we ever called him that or anything, but I mean, you know, he wasn't, he was responsible uh, and he was a really responsible person. So he just felt like, you know, he let us down, I think. But the fact was that if we were going offshore, especially for one or two or three days, um, we have a small child with us. We did not have the experience offshore. Anything can happen out there. And we did have a couple of instances where serious things happen. It was wonderful to have someone with us who was really experienced and not just wonderful, but we needed it. So um, we, we continue to ask him for longer passages to join us. The first version of the book did not even mention this guy. <laughs> oh, no. And then I brought him in, his name, like he was, like he was a friend or something. And even, 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 even more recently, my daughter, Kate, who was with us, she's now 30. But <laughs> when she read the book, she said, oh, I always thought Cliff was just your friend. <laughs> you know, we, so, you know, I changed and just um, being able to accept a more real version of us, I guess, instead of my fantasy of, you know, how it should have been or something. Oh, what a what a beautiful lesson to have learned and to be able to, you know, to write about it. Could we have our final reading, please? Yes. Now, this is from a later chapter. And the chapter is titled Hurricane Mitch. We are in Guatemala and uh, we're up this remote river called the Rio Dulce. John is away on business that week. I first heard about Hurricane Mitch at dinner with Julianne and Charlotte in the thatched roof marina restaurant. John had been gone about a week. Eating at the awful marina restaurant, our conversation revolved around fabulous meals we had enjoyed elsewhere, in contrast to the rubbery steak and tasteless bread we now consumed. Kate, Natalie, and Emil played tag under the empty tables. Some boaters focused on a TV at the bar where a weatherman pointed to a cloudy mass drifting around the Western Caribbean, a hurricane, but it doesn't look like it's headed our direction. And category one is not bad, Julianne said after wandering over to the TV to check it out. I trusted Julianne's judgment. Julianne and Charlotte had sailed across the Atlantic and raced in world-class sailing races. I wasn't sure, though, whether he would play it down to keep me from worrying. The pit of my stomach tingled. The others who had listened to the weather milled around, ordering more watery gallo beer, yawning, and playing cards. A couple of people leaped through the used books, looking for something to read before bed. It was the end of October, late in the season for a hurricane. It didn't feel like a crisis. Still, I wanted John around if something major was happening. The next morning, I dropped Kate off at Riley's boat, Big Easy, and went to Felipe's internet cafe in Fronteras to write John and see what information Felipe had about Hurricane Mitch. Before this voyage, I associated the dinghy with New England seafood dinners in Connecticut harbors or Block Island. On summer weekends, we would pass other sailors heading into shore to quaint seaside restaurants. 
A man running the dinghy, a woman, and children crowded alongside. Since John left, Kate and I had been bombing around the river on White Fang together and on our own. We wondered how we could have been so chicken about it earlier. We were like teenagers who had just gotten our licenses. But we were not on a summer vacation. The dinghy was our lifeline. Felipe sat before his computer with a small crowd of locals and cruisers around him. He was in his 30s, mustachioed and six feet tall, an unusual height here. He had lived in the States before returning to his native country. The satellite picture on Felipe's screen showed a fiery mass covering most of the Western Caribbean. Mitch was huge. Winds had strengthened to Category 5. At 200 miles per hour, it was the largest and strongest hurricane on record. It had strengthened rapidly from the evening before. A few hundred miles out, its direction was unclear. Mitch seemed to be heading north, meaning it would miss us, but there was talk of evacuation. We gawked at each other. I'll keep track of it and broadcast over the radio. Check channel 67 and call me if you want, Felipe said in Spanish. Then in English, he printed out a copy of the satellite map and scotch taped it to the window in his door. In a daze, I headed for a computer to check email. I would have to handle a Category 5 storm without John. Right now, the sun was out, but that would change soon enough. John and I had weathered a couple of weak hurricanes when we lived in Connecticut on Phaedrus, but Hurricane Mitch was on a different scale altogether. This was not the first time John was away during a storm either. He had been away for the storm in Beaufort, North Carolina. But now I was in a poor foreign country in what was shaping up as a major disaster. I became conscious of my shallow breaths. As I sat at a computer to log in, a cold shiver wriggled through my gut. John had just heard about Mitch. His email had yesterday's date, when Mitch was not yet very powerful. He wished he could be with us. Just hearing his words in my head calmed me. I looked around to see people shouting anxiously into Felipe's long-distance phones and frantically typing on keyboards. John wrote, Got your message. You sound better by a lot. Why is it every time I do this, you find a storm? Looks like it will hit Cancun. You'll only be on the edge. If the wind starts getting much higher than 30, 40, just worry that the dinghy is well secured. You've got extra lines out and the sail cover has been lashed. If it looks like a lot over 50, 60, get the jib and main off and anything that could blow away, lashed down. But I doubt that will happen. You're in an incredibly well-protected lagoon, so I'm not worrying about you. And if it looks really bad, I assume you'll get the hell out. I do, however, wish I was there. Talk to you later. Via con Dios. Via con Dios. Go with God. John wasn't a religious person. Was that a joke? The little phrase eased into my psyche as my anxiety rose. Evacuation scenarios rattled through my mind. And it continues with our hurricane adventure. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> So where can we buy Holding Fast, a memoir of sailing, love, and loss? You can buy it on my website, which is susan-cole.com. And on my website, you can buy it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google Play. And if you want to support indie bookshops at bookshop.org. So it's available or, or local. You could ask for it at, at your local bookstore. That is wonderful. Susan, thank you so much for, for joining us for the podcast, for reading, for sharing your adventures with us. It's been a pleasure to have you on. It was such a pleasure, Yvonne. I really, I really enjoyed meeting you. <laughs>